we're excited about it, looking forward to it. And as you're turning there, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 14. You know, this uh, coming Tuesday is Election Day. If you uh, haven't already voted, please remember to vote. A lot of people vote early now. Uh, and, you know, I guess in the big picture of things, there have been larger elections. Um, but for me, this is a special one. Some of you may know uh, for the past 11 years, I've served on the electoral board for our county. And uh, this will be the last one that I'm serving. I'll finish out December 31st of this year. But I remember when Larry Davis talked me into uh, seeking to pursue that position. And I can remember the Monday night before the first election, and this was 11 years ago that I was a part of, I was so nervous I could hardly sleep. I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought, well, everything's going to go tough, and they're going to look at me, and I'm the new guy on the block and don't know very much. The first day, they went pretty well. But one thing that I learned very quickly that I should have been nervous about I had no concept of the acronyms of electoral lingo. I mean, there were terms like FOIA, FOIA, some of you who work, y'all understand that, uh, SOR, Statement of Results, EB, Electoral Board, GR, General Registrar, uh, Veris. I still don't know what that is. I just know you have to look to find out if somebody votes. I don't know what it stands for. Uh, but, you know, as I was thinking about that, I began to think about the lingo we use in the church that people have no concept of. If you've grown in, up in church as I have, we use these terms and just automatically assume that some stranger that comes in to our church knows exactly what we're saying. But to be honest, they don't. The word vestibule, where do you get that word vestibule? The only time I've ever heard that's in a church. Could you imagine sitting in someone's den and watching TV and them all of a sudden saying, uh, I must get up and go to the vestibule to pick something up? We don't say that. We say, I need to go to the front hall. So why don't we say the hallway at the front of the church? But no, we say vestibule. Walk the aisle. If you thought about that, imagine if you had no Baptist bearings at all and you heard that people walk the aisle at that church, you probably think it's a cult and you're thinking people walking and pacing up and down the aisle. But why don't we just say responding personally or publicly after the preacher has preached a message? Or how about invocation? That's a term we use. If you use that in the workplace, they might think that you're speaking of a work uh, insurrection or something like that. They might not know what an invocation is, but very simply, it's an opening prayer. We use lots of terms like this that we may know what they mean, but people new to the ministry of the church may not. And that really leads to our subject today as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. There are two words that are repeated multiple times in these few verses that we really need to define, and they're the words in him. We see it repeated. What does that mean? And we're going to see this, this morning. Look with me at verses 7 through 14, and notice how many times the words in him are repeated. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. 
He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure as he purposed in Christ. As a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, this term grace is going to be a continual theme as we go through this book. And simply put, Lord, grace is your unmerited, undeserved favor that you grant toward us. And Father, we know that that comes in Christ Jesus. So as we study your word today, open our eyes that we might apply our hearts and our lives to its truth. And we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, again, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and last week we talked about the many blessings of God's grace, the blessings of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today? If you come to the time in your life where you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Bible tells us, especially in Ephesians chapter 1, the many blessings that are part of of your life. And so as we continue to look at these blessings, in fact, uh, my headline and my English translation beginning in verse 3 and continuing through where we have concluded this morning speaks of God's rich blessings. We talked last week how verse 3 to verse 12 in the original language was one sentence. Can you imagine that? All of these words Paul was adding, speaking about the blessings of God's grace to us. And in the midst of it, we see here in verses 7 and the verses that follow, again, these two words, in him. What does this mean? Look with me very quickly to Philippians chapter 3. Now, it's a very easy turn because we're in Ephesians. Uh, There are six chapters there. When you get through that, you're right to Philippians 1, and then we move on. And we're going to be in Ephesians, I mean, rather, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. It's always great to use the Bible when you try to define terms. And so as we look at in him, there's no better uh, verse in Scripture to define what it means to be in him, that is, in Christ, than verse 9. Notice what it says in Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him, comma, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Now, what do we see here? It says that to be found in him is not a righteousness of our own making. So we don't come into a position of being in him by our own merit. Also, it is not through the law that we don't, come into right standing in him through law observance. That is by trying to do good. You know, the problem with that is we can't do good. I don't know about you. I don't want my best day to be my merit because I would fall short. It is totally 
dependent on Christ. And that's what it says in verse 9. To be found in him is not having a righteousness of my own through the law, but we see that adversative there, the contrast, one that is through faith in Christ. And so as we look at it, to be in him speaks to a position. It speaks to a standing with God that is a standing through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a position of right standing. We can't gain it by our own merit, the scripture says. We can't gain it by trying to keep the law. It is solely through faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder today, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Last night, I was at a mission uh, sending organization banquet, and they talked about how simple the gospel is and how people are responding to the gospel. The gospel is not complex. It's profound, but it's not complex. And the gospel is this. Jesus Christ died for you. He arose from the grave. He is triumphant over sin and over death. And if you will place your faith in him, not just standing back and saying, well, I believe that happened, but actually all in with Christ, placing your faith in him, you'll be saved. And by the way, saved is really the same thing as redeemed. Saved means that we're saved from a destiny toward destruction that sin is taking us toward, and we're brought into salvation, freedom from that in Christ Jesus. If you haven't made that decision, why not today? Why not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe God's been bringing you to this point. So being in him speaks to a position, a standing with God in Christ. If you haven't done so, it's the most important decision you should make is to surrender to the lordship of Christ. But if you have done so, we're going to see two things that result from being in Christ. And we're going to see these two things in verses 7 through 14. And the first is this. In the present time, right now, if we are in him, we are in a continual right standing with God. Paul writes in our text here as we turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, comma, the forgiveness of sins. I like that comma there because it explains a lot. It's in apposition, not opposition, but it's in a positive. In other words, if I were going to describe myself to you, I would say Rick Caldwell, comma, the pastor of Concord Baptist Church. I would describe who I was by the position that I held. Here when it says in, in verse 7, if we, in him we have redemption through his blood, comma, the forgiveness of sin, that tells us the redemption that we have it is qualified, explained in this. It is the forgiveness of sin. So redemption is forgiveness of sin. And that forgiveness of sin comes through faith in Jesus Christ, through the work of Christ. And the very faith that we have, the foundation of that is the grace of God. Look, you can't even get to the plate. You can't even come to the table apart from the grace of God. And so we're looking at redemption here. As I was reading that term, a number of things came to mind, but one thing that came to my attention was the Old Testament prophet Hosea. You may remember there's a, a, a name of the book of the Bible for Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea was asked to do something. He was called to take a promiscuous woman to be his wife. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't a wonderful, uh, virtuous type person. Uh, she was... Uh, a fallen person. And so he took 
Hosea to be his wife. I think she bore three children to him. But the scripture says, then she became promiscuous again. She left him. She committed adultery. And so God told Hosea to go to her, to pay a price for her, and to take her back as his wife. And God was trying to call Hosea to do something in order to show him what he has done and what he did for Israel, and if we move forward beyond that to what he's done for us. Listen, all of us are fallen. All of us are sinners. And apart from his grace, we can't have redemption. Well, we see what Hosea did. He spent 15 shekels of of silver, which was about uh, 5.8 ounces, a little over $100 worth of silver, uh, five bushels of uh, barley, which I don't know what that is. With inflation like it is, it's probably uh, costing more now than it did uh, a few uh, months ago. But as we look at it here, the situation was this. We might not compare, because it's hard to compare from one time to another, but simply put, he had to pay a price to get her back. Now, follow this. This is important. The offended one, Hosea, had to pay a price to buy back the one who offended him. And that's what God has done. We, through our sins, have offended him. We're, we're enemies against God before we come to know Christ. And, and because of that, God, who is offended, rather than sitting like this, and doing nothing, reached out and sent his son to pay a price. And not a price that depreciates or fluctuates. He sent the very life of his son. That's why it says that we're redeemed and in, in it's through his blood. So when God comes to an unknowing person, that person is just living his or her life, working hard, doing this, that, partying, whatever it might be. And God comes to that person. The Holy Spirit convicts that person. God takes the initiative. God takes that person where he or she is and says, I paid a price for you. Won't you believe in me? I wonder today, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? A lot of people debate, well, what was that redemption paid toward or the ransom paid? We're, we're not going to get into that because all we see in our scripture today, at least in our context, is the redemption has to do with the forgiveness of our trespasses. We, before we come to Christ, we're under the control of sin, and, and Jesus moves by his grace, that person from the control of sin to his own possession. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, there are those words again, we might become the righteousness of God. I call that the great exchange. Jesus took the price of our sin upon us and he willingly extended and gave his righteousness in place of that. Well, as we see that, the redemption is through Jesus' blood. It is the forgiveness of our trespasses. And it goes on, and at the end of that verse, it speaks of grace again. And it, in verse 8, it says, he richly poured out on us this grace with all wisdom and understanding. It's very hard, and, and people have a, a, two really thoughts of with, with uh, 
uh, understanding and wisdom. Some say that it's speaking of God in his wisdom and understanding working this out. Others say not only does God give us the wisdom uh, or give us the redemption, but he also gives us the wisdom and the understanding. I tend to think that's what it means here because he follows that in verse 9 by speaking of the truth that he makes known to us the mystery of Christ. And so uh, what I would call that, the whip-topping of God's grace, not only does he give us redemption, which is essential, but beyond that, he gives with us wisdom and understanding to know how he's working in your life. Don't you want to know how God is not just working in this cosmos, but how he is working in your life? That's a result of God's grace. So there's a present reality to it that the, the one who follows Jesus, who believes in Jesus, experiences. But then there's a second truth. If we're in him, we know that we have a blessed future. People will say, how can you know that? On the authority of God's word. On the authority of God's word. He, he tells us that if we have faith in him, we have eternal life. And we see here the scripture tells us that he's working out all of creation for his purpose. You know, we're heading somewhere. We're, we're not in some circle like certain religions would teach. We're on a line. We're headed somewhere. We're going to see exactly where that is. But I was laughing this week. I was looking online and at funny signs, street signs. And there was this uh, yellow sign with black lettering. And it was a diamond shape. And it had seven different arrows and directions. I mean, it was very confusing. And below it was a small rectangular sign that said 45 miles per hour. And below that, another small rectangular sign that said, good luck, good luck. <laughs> Look, we don't need luck. We're headed somewhere. God's made it clear through the scripture. We see three things about the future. And the first is this, all things will be united in Christ. We're living in divided times today, aren't we? among political parties, among all types of things. We're living in times uh, of lack of trust. We're living in times of confusion. We're living in times where we're trying to follow men. But I want you to know today that Jesus Christ has it all in control and it's headed toward his purpose and things being united in him. Look at verse 9. Again, it says there, he made known to us the mystery of his will. This is not some confusing thing that only the most brilliant can grasp. That's not what mystery is. A mystery, very simply in context here, means something that was formerly not known at the time of Paul's writing was known. And what is that? The person of Jesus Christ. Every person is brought to, to right standing with God through Christ. And, and it just so happened when Paul was writing at that historical time that that mystery was revealed. The prophets were prophesying about him. We're getting ready to study Christmas. I challenge you, look at the prophecies of Jesus' first coming. They'll bless your soul. But all of those things they were pointing. But now the, the mystery of the ages has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. Because everything is going to be united in him. That Jesus prayed that in the Lord's Prayer, didn't he? He said, your will, Father, be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And, and that will is done through Christ Jesus. And it will be that way when Jesus comes back. When Jesus rules from the holy city of Jerusalem, all will be united in him. And, and when after that time, subsequently, the eternal state, when, when the new Jerusalem comes down and we're in the heaven of heavens for eternity, everything will be united through Christ Jesus. I wonder today, have you come to know him? Have you come to a union with Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you believed in him? All things will be united in Christ. But then in verses 11 and 12, we see in the future also there will be a realization of the inheritance. Look at verse 11. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything. That sounds like he has the future in control, doesn't it? In agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ, Paul is talking about himself, might bring praise to his glory. In other words, there's going to be a realization of our inheritance. I mentioned last week in verse 5 as we were studying about adoption, that we would return to it. And, that, and we're going to do that right now. Verse 5 said, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Now, Peter said in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and, and verse 10, as he was writing to people, he said, once you were not a people, and now you are a people. No one is born a Christian. Now, I'm going to say something funny. I said that one time about 15 years ago. And somebody said, Pastor, you're wrong. And I said, why do you say I'm wrong? She said, my name is Diane Christian Owings. I'm married to a Owings, but I was a Christian. I said, well, let me restate that. No one is born in right standing with God. Adoption speaks really to a couple of things. And I have a niece that's adopted. One one who has formerly not been a part of a family becomes part of the family. And it's a beautiful thing. And nothing, I was born to, to my parents, birth parents. Uh, I, I know they loved me. But if I had been adopted, I would know they chose me. Have you ever thought about that? I would know they chose me. And so as we look, it speaks first, one formally not being a part of the family, becoming a family, but then also along with that, that one being special. So now as part of God's family, the adopted child has access to the full blessings of being in the family and inheritance. That's why a lot of times, especially if people have older children and they contemplate adopting a child, the parents will not only make that decision unilaterally, but they'll confer with the older children because they understand they're bringing someone who is not a family, is part of the family. It could be a surprise, and they express that, and many times that happens with a blessing. Why is that? Because once that one is brought into the family, there's the full blessing of the inheritance. And, and spiritually speaking, Christian, your inheritance is incorruptible. It will stand all time. You cannot become unadopted. And part of that inheritance will be that you'll be a joint ruler under Christ in eternity. 
As I said, Paul personalizes that hope in verse 12. He, he identifies with it. He says, we who had already put our hope in Christ, he was one of the early ones in the early church, might bring praise to his glory. And then we see a third thing. There will be the full redemption of the saved person in the future. Verse 13, in him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. At the moment a person believes on Jesus Christ, that person's spirit is redeemed. That person's spirit lives forever. That's that term that we use, saved. It means that person is brought, <coughs> excuse me, from a destination toward darkness to a pathway of life in him through faith in Christ. But there's a further redemption the Bible speaks about, the redemption of our bodies. In Romans 8.23, Paul writes, We who have the Spirit as the firstfruits yearn, we are eagerly waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is speaking to the Romans. He's a Christian there. He's saying, in a way, <coughs> excuse me, we're redeemed. But we are waiting for further redemption. What is that? The completion of that redemption in Christ Jesus. Now, as we look at Romans 8, 23, and then we look at Ephesians 1, 13, it says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth. The Holy Spirit is a seal. When a person believes, we've already seen the redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's the negating part. But the positive part is God gives us the Holy Spirit. Some people say <coughs> you have to wait for the second blessing. Why would God save somebody and not equip them at that point to do what God's called them to do? That blessing is the Holy Spirit. And, and Romans 8, 9 says that if you are in Christ, that you have the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not be filled with the Holy Spirit, but you have the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. There are many things the Holy Spirit brings. He empowers our witness. He convicts us of sin. He does many things, but very specifically here, it speaks of the Holy Spirit sealing, authenticating, protecting. But also it speaks of the Holy Spirit being the first fruit. Now, the Feast of Pentecost was observed by the Jews. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and Pentecost was known really as what was the culmination of the first fruits. And that pointed to the fact that if there be first fruits, there would be other fruit that would follow. So when God bestows his Holy Spirit in us in this dispensation, this time in which we live, he dwells in us as the first fruits as a testament to the fact that there's something to follow. And that thing to follow is the full redemption of our bodies when the dead in Christ will rise to be with the Lord. That's what Paul speaks about in uh, uh, Romans 8, 23. That's what he speaks about in verse 13 and verse 14. The Holy Spirit being the down payment just like a first fruit said there are going to be fruits to follow, the down payment says there's more payment to come. So if we're believers, the Holy Spirit dwells in us as a testament to the fact 
that we're going to experience the full redemption of Christ. So as we look at it today, what is that really saying to us? The question really today is, are you in him? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you still under the control of sin and the flesh in your own way? I pray today that you would say, God, I'm not in him, but I want to be in him. God, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I know that my destination is outside of him, not in him. I believe Jesus died for me, that he rose again, and I believe that he will save me, redeem me, forgive me of my sins through faith in him. There's nothing I can do to merit it, but God, I accept your grace, and I want to live in that grace. If you've already done that and you are in him, don't abuse that grace of God. Because we see in this God working out his purpose. We saw it in verse 11, bringing praise to his glory. God's grace is not just a get out of hell free card for the believer. God's grace is that we might work out his purpose, that we might serve to his praise and his glory. So today, every person within the sound of my voice, in fact, in all this world, is in one of two places, either in him, or not. I hope that you're in him. The, the great news of the gospel is you can do so right now. You can believe on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Lord, even the grace that allows us to be here today. Father, your grace is abundant. And Father, the scripture says that where sin abounded in its power, grace superabounded. Christ's death on the cross was a sufficient payment for us. Lord, if there be any today that need to trust you, I pray this would be the day. And Father, for those who are in Christ, may we seek to live in the fullness of your purpose and praise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close today with a song, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. If God has spoken to your heart today in any way and you want to share it publicly, I'll be standing.